Well, I've titled this message, What's So Good About the Good Shepherd? And we could really, uh, I say that because this passage is, is about the good shepherd, but uh, we, could, we could really ask that question about Jesus generally. What's so good about Jesus? You know, I uh, mentioned last week that globally Christianity is growing, not declining. That's good news, right? That's encouraging news. The majority of Christians today, as I said, including 77% of evangelicals live in the Southern Hemisphere, the global South. The majority of Christians around the world are black and brown, not white. And again, I, I mentioned that as a, it's just a sort of an indication of where Christianity has grown and flourished over the last hundred years. And uh, the, the, the communities that we live in, the world we live in, we look around and we think of um, sort of ourselves as the church or as Christianity, and it has boomed um, elsewhere in the world. And uh, that's an enormous shift that has taken place, just absolutely staggering, as people who in some cases lived for, for centuries in spiritual darkness and bondage have in over the last hundred years been ushered into light and life um, and just a, a whole new way of seeing the world, freedom that they've never known. They've discovered that Jesus really is who he says he is, that he really does what he said he would do. And they're, they're discovering that in a real and personal way. Meanwhile, as I said, in Europe and in North America, we seem to have just gotten bored with Christianity. It's been so good for so long for us, we just thought we would try something else. We would try on the alternatives. And one of the things that John 10 says, and it's one of numerous places in the New Testament where Jesus says, in so many words, there are no alternatives. There are no alternatives to Jesus. Uh, there are only countless wayward paths you might go. But there are no real alternatives to him and the way that he would lead us on. He says, of course, in this passage, as we just read, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. It's two of seven of the I am statements that he makes in John's gospel, that John records in his gospel, two very exclusive claims about himself. And he reinforces that point, that, that exclusivity um, again, in this passage, setting himself in contrast to everyone else. He says in, in verse 8 there, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. All. You know, people in our day and age, maybe it's been true in every day and age, but people don't really like exclusive truth claims. But Jesus makes them pretty unapologetically about himself. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. And what distinguishes Jesus from all others most fundamentally is the supreme love that he demonstrates toward his people. 
I mean, if you, want, if you wanted to, to, to sort of distill it down to one distinguishing truth about Jesus, characteristic about him, that distinguishes him and, and Christianity from every other uh, spiritual leader, guru, and every uh, system of thought and teaching, it would be that he is in his nature love, that he embodies love, that he personifies love, that he models love for us to demonstrate toward other people. And he did that in, in the supreme way that love could possibly be demonstrated in sacrificing himself for our sin that we might be reconciled to God. That's, of course, the good news of the gospel. But that is uh, what distinguishes him from, from all others, uh, perhaps among other things. But there is no one else in the history of the world who could make that claim that he demonstrated that most supreme kind of love toward us. As we've considered before, I've, I've used this phrase before, but love is the giving of oneself for the good of another. Lust is taking from another for the pleasure of oneself. And I'm using the word lust just in a very general way, not only the, the way we think of it uh, in a sexual terms, but just uh, but lust is, is that impulse to take from others for the pleasure of oneself. Love gives of oneself for the good of another. And Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd who has a self-sacrificing love for his sheep. And all others, all others, at the end of the day, are self-interested thieves, according to Jesus. Well, that contrast, that contrast between him as the good shepherd and all others as thieves is essential, really, to understanding this passage. And he opens with it in verses 1 and 2 there, where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by uh, enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way. That man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. In the next few verses, he develops this word picture. And then down in verse, verses 7 and 8, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. Now, some here think that Jesus is referring uh, to false messiahs that came before him, and they certainly may be included in that. It seems very likely to me that he at least includes among those who came before him, those who are thieves and robbers, that he includes among them the Pharisees and the other religious leaders who he sort of contests at every turn, it seems like, in the Gospels. And I say that largely because in chapter 9, which, as you smart people know, precedes chapter 10, uh, right? In chapter 9, we read about, and it's been some time since we were there, but we read about Jesus healing the man born blind. And you remember, it was an incredible miracle. He, he um, sent him over, you know, put mud on his eyes, sent him to the uh, pool at Siloam and he came back seeing. And, and that man himself said, no one 
has ever heard of such a thing happening in the history of the world. No one has ever heard of a man born blind receiving his sight. But the Pharisees were mad about it. They were mad about it, basically, because he was healed on a Sabbath. It couldn't possibly be that Jesus was a man of God. He healed him on the Sabbath day. And they said, that, that, that's against the law to heal somebody on the Sabbath. Of course, the law didn't say that. The Bible, God didn't say that, you may remember. But they did, and they were, they, were, they were mad about it. They would rather the man stay blind than to wreck their religious system, you understand. And so they refused to believe because of their spiritual blindness. And chapter 9 ends with him saying, in so many words, you're blind. They, they, he hears them telling the blind man about the spiritual blindness, and they say, are we blind too? And he basically says, yeah. And the very next phrase is verse 1 of chapter 10. Truly, truly, I say to you. He says, you're blind. Truly, truly, I say to you. He who does not enter by the sheepfold but, uh, by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. He immediately starts saying, he starts talking about thieves and robbers. And so it would seem to me that that includes among them those religious leaders. And again, I think there's good reason, even as we unpack uh, this chapter, this passage, why that makes sense. Because the, the contrast to what uh, religion takes from people, the contrast of that to what Jesus gives to people, um, is really, again, important to understanding this. Well, I'll say too, he builds out this um, illustration in these few verses that follow, verses one and two, in talking about the sheepfold and the gate and the shepherd and uh, calling and, and the sheep knowing his voice and so forth. It, it draws on this... Um, practice or whatever, this custom in first century Palestine where some communities had uh, like one large sheep pen for the, for the community or sheep fold as it's called. And at the end of the day, people brought, uh, shepherds brought their small individual flocks and led them into the big sheep fold. It's sort of like a community parking garage. You know, like underneath the condo complex, everybody who lives in the high-rise condo can park in the parking garage if you've got a pass to get in and out. And so all the, the, uh, the shepherds of that community could park their sheep in the sheep pen overnight. And, the, and with their sort of combined resources, they would pay a gatekeeper to watch the sheep overnight, to guard the, the sheep pen so somebody couldn't along, come along and steal them. And then in the morning, the gatekeeper opened the gate to the shepherds who had sheep there that they would know, again, not because they had a card that they would scan at the gate, but they would recognize them. Um, and uh, they, they had sheep enclosed in the sheepfold. And when the shepherd entered the sheepfold, the, she the sheep of all the local flocks were mixed together. And when he began to call... His sheep recognized his voice and came to him and followed him out. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever seen that this kind of thing still goes on. You can actually go online and watch the videos. You could find this on YouTube of shepherds calling their sheep. And actually of these little tests of people who aren't the shepherd trying to call sheep. And they act like nobody's there. I just absolutely ignore those other voices. And when the shepherd starts calling, they all start running. It's really a fascinating thing. But that's exactly what he's describing there. The sheep recognize his voice and they, they come to him and they follow him. So the, the shepherd actually leads his sheep out. You would see more in, in modern days, uh, uh, sheep are sort of herded by uh, sheepdogs more often, right? And they kind of drive them to where they're going. And that's a fascinating thing to watch, but a little different uh, in this day and age. And so we see as he, as he then develops, he sort of paints that word picture and then uses that uh, to provide some understanding of who he is and what he will do for his people, his sheep. And again, the, the, the fundamental difference between him and all other spiritual leaders, religious leaders, teachers, then and now, is how he loves his sheep. And so I just want to look quickly at three ways that the good shepherd loves his sheep that we see here in John chapter 10. And number one, he guides them to peace and security. He guides them to peace and security. If you look at verse nine, it says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So he's, I, I guess I might uh, say here, one of the ways that the shepherd loves the sheep is by also being the, the door. Uh, he is the door and he is uh, the, the good shepherd. He, he mixes uh, those metaphors here. But the sheep go out through the door in the morning and the shepherd leads them to pasture where they find their provision. They aren't just left to wander and find pasture on their own. He leads them to pasture where there's a sort of an open and fertile place where they can graze and find their provision in peace, free from the threat of um, attacks from wolves. Not because there aren't any wolves around, but because there's a shepherd to beat them back. So they find provision and peace, uh, peaceful partaking of receiving of that. And then they go back through the door into the sheepfold in the evening where they find security for the night. So in both directions, the welfare of the sheep is in view. You see, the, the, the shepherd is concerned for the welfare of the sheep, both in leading them to pasture and leading them back to the pen. Security is provided by way of boundaries and containment. But then there is freedom and peace to be found in the grazing of open pastures. And that's actually a beautiful picture of what Jesus provides. The security of boundaries and yet the, 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 the freedom 
of the, the fullness of peace and provision that he provides. Religion tends to gravitate toward a lifestyle of boundaries and containment, right? This is, this is all the way, all the, always the way religion gravitates. That is, when you, the, the more the, the life of the spirit is withdrawn from religious practice, the more the sin of man will, will just tend toward rules and rigidity, right? And, and just containment. It becomes defined by fear and control, coercion, manipulation, anger, condescension toward people. And, and, and it's, it's like a noose tightening around the necks of people. It's like a, it's like a, 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 one, a constrictor, boa constrictor or a python or something, just wrapping around people slowly, choking the life out of them. That's, that's where religion tends, it gravitates in that direction. It's a life of just life in the pen. That's how you can control people. You keep them in the pen. Afraid of what uh, the, the freedom of pasture might lead to. And so don't let them out into the pasture. Keep them in the pen. That's where religion tends. On the other hand, raw spirituality tends in the other direction, to the other extreme. And this is a growing number of people in America describe themselves these days. Every time surveys are done, polls are done or whatever, a growing number of people describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. More and more people who used to identify as Christian now will say, when, they, when asked what's your re religious affiliation, they'll say none. Not that they are now atheist, uh, but that they just don't have any particular religious affiliation. They'll say, I'm religious or spiritual rather, but not religious. But raw spirituality, spirituality as I've called it, uh, tends to be about all open pasture with no boundaries at all. No destination at all even. Just free roaming. And there's something that seems, at least on the surface, attractive about that. Because each sheep just picks his own pasture his own direction, his own destination or no destination at all. There's never any pen to be contained in. And like I said, that sounds very inviting at first on the surface. That I could just make my own way, that I could have no rules or define my own rules. It could be entirely self-regulated, but it is actually uh, ultimately in the end, there's no security to be found there. In fact, there's really ends up being a great deal of insecurity because you discover if everything is self-defined, I'm not really qualified to define it all. And that, that becomes the self-discovery. And, and, and if there's nothing but me as the reference point for what is good and right and true, and, uh, and how my life ought to be directed and so forth, it ends up being terribly insecure. Religion tends in one direction to one extreme, raw spirituality to the other. Jesus guides his sheep to the peace 
and full provision of the pasture and also to the security, even eternal security of the pen. The second way that he loves his sheep is he offers them abundant life. You see that in verse 10, and this is a familiar one to many of us. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And you hear the contrast once again here between the shepherd and the thief. And as I said, the contrast really is essential to understanding and appreciating what's here in this passage. The good shepherd gives of himself for the good of his sheep. The thief takes for himself at the expense of the sheep. The thief comes only to steal, that is to take. He doesn't give, he takes. And to kill and to destroy. The welfare of the sheep is not the thief's concern at all. His own welfare is the only concern. His, his, the welfare of the shepherd is not his concern. Because he's going to steal what belongs to the shepherd. That is the, that's the nature of the thief. But the shepherd, the good shepherd offers abundant life. Now, this is one of those verses, one of these passages, again, that, that may become so familiar that it loses its power in our own hearts. Because one of the things we want to do as we go through here as people who follow Jesus is really evaluate how is our own spiritual walk and life looking. And, and, and one of the questions is, is it characterized by abundant life? Is your life? Is your life, O oh follower of Jesus, characterized by abundant life? Is there, is there fullness of joy? Is there fullness of a new meaning and purpose in life? Is there, is there fullness of fresh hope and, and love that redefines our relationship with other people? Some of us have walked with the Lord for long enough that we can think back and remember the early days when there was just boundless joy and a, and a whole fresh perspective on life, a new sense of purpose and direction and hope and all of that. And maybe, maybe that is worn a little thin. And maybe we need to recover some of that. Maybe our life isn't really in our own experience characterized by abundance this morning. But that is what the good shepherd leads us to. That is what he gives, what he offers. That's what we ought to be experiencing. And if we're, if we're not, that's what we ought to pursue once again. Number three, he loves his sheep. The good shepherd loves his sheep by sacrificing himself for him. And this is really, again, the distinguishing uh, feature, if not, uh, if not any other, of Jesus, the distinguishing characteristic. His self-sacrifice for the sake of the world, there's nobody else that makes that claim. 
There's nobody else that makes that. No other religion makes that claim. No other uh, uh, spiritual system of thought would make that claim. Um, the bottom line of every other system of thought is that it's uh, ultimately up to you. That it's on you to, to sort of find your own way, work your own way up, do good enough to earn your way or whatever, but it's, it's, it's ultimately all on you. What Jesus says is the good shepherd, he sacrifices himself for the sheep. That is the supreme act of love. As I said, it is in his nature. He embodies it. He personifies it. He models it for us then to go and live. But verses 11 and following, really, it's most of the rest of uh, this passage that he makes this point at least four times. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he goes on to say, he was a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. But again, he would go on to say, I, I lay down my life for the sheep. He doesn't run from the wolf. He lays down his own life, risks his own life for the sake of the sheep, as it were. And as we know, he came, as he says here, willingly, God became man, willingly laid his life down. Nobody took it from him. He gave it voluntarily. But, but, but surrendered himself into the jaws of the wolf, as it were. That he just, he ran headlong into death. Even death on a cross. The most gruesome torturous kind of death one could experience. Taken on the penalty of sin for everyone who would believe in him so that they might have life. He gave his, he laid down his life, threw himself into the jaws of the wolf, as it were. So a mere hireling, as he said, would flee. Everybody else is self-interested. And of course, he says not only that he laid down his life, he has the authority to take up his life again, which he did. If the end of the story had just been that he died for the sake of others, it would just be a great hero story like we might read about in, you know, Greek or Roman mythology or that kind of thing. But he would just have been a dead hero. But he did not stay dead, right? He had the authority to take up his life again, and he did. This is the, the what distinguishes Jesus from all others is that he loved supremely to the point of sacrificing his own life. But what made that of real worth is that he took up his life again. And we have to remember when we, th when we think about uh, Jesus because we can sort of be lulled into 
um, thinking of him as, as a dead savior. He is not dead. He is now, right now, at 11 o'clock a.m. Eastern time, alive. He is right now alive and reigning. But he sacrificed himself for his sheep that everybody, anybody who would follow him can have life through him, abundant life, peace and security. The security not only in this world, not mostly in this world, but even in this world, even in very uncertain times, um, even in... uh, discouraging and difficult times, a sense of peace and security to be found in him. But far above that, it would be a sense of security eternally that those who come to God through him will be saved and led to pasture, uh, an eternal peaceful dwelling place. And he modeled the kind of love for us that we are to demonstrate to one another. And you know, protection, as he, he, he illustrates it here uh, by way of the protection of the shepherd for his sheep, but protection is an inherently loving act. The way a, a husband protects his wife or a father protects his children or parents protect their household even. The way police officers protect the public and soldiers protect the country, it is an inherently loving act because it is giving up your own safety for the good of another. And Jesus, again, did that in the most ultimate, unimaginable way possible for his sheep. Well, as I said, this this gives us some measures by which we can evaluate our own spiritual walk. Because in, in some respects, if you're a Christian and if you've been following Jesus for some length of time, this, this is so familiar um, that it it's, has the potential to lose its power and its significance toward us, but it gives us some measures by which we can evaluate our own spiritual walk. So what is your personal experience? What has been recently, at 11 now, 03 a.m., <laughs> Eastern time, on February 13th, what is your experience in your spiritual walk? Uh, do you abide in a place of peace and security? And is that what you invite others into? Or is the Christianity that we project to the world characterized by condemnation, anger, fear, control, and coercion? I want to pause here a moment on, this, on these sort of evaluation questions because here's, here's our tendency is that we, if we only ask the first part of the question, um, do we abide in a place of peace and security and um, love and abundance and so forth, we would, we would say yes because we know, that's, we, we know these passages, right? And we know that's supposed to be true of the Christian life. But the related question is, 
is that what we project to people outside the church? You know, sometimes when you do surveys, it's helpful to know uh, if you're even, a, even doing a survey to evaluate the effectiveness of an organization. You might do internal polls and ask people inside the organization what they see. But you also might ask people outside the organization what they think. And that perspective is very helpful. In your Christian life, do you assess yourself to be abiding in peace and security that that's the life that you live as a follower of Jesus? And is that what you project to others? Or is the Christianity that you project characterized by fear and condemnation Control and coercion. Do people perceive that you invite them to a life in the pen? Or is there pasture? Do we live full and abundant life because we stay close to Jesus? You know, could you say, I am living in that, that fullness of joy, of hope. This becomes a little more difficult in the years we've been talking about recently, right? What's going on in the world? Well, it's not altogether good news, right? I said it's a little bit of a mixed bag. And it's a little bit harder, perhaps, to live in abiding joy when there's so much discouraging happening in the world. But Jesus didn't say this to people who had a lot to live for on this earth. The people who followed Jesus had very little hope to be found in this life. Poor and oppressed people who sort of lived on the margins of society. And so are we living in that fullness of an abundant life because we stay close to Jesus? And do we love in a sacrificial way because of his love for us? And that's really what we're called to do. You know, we love because he first loved us, right? We love him because he first loved us, but he's also uh, called us to love others, in Jesus' name. Because of his love for us, that compels us not only to sort of hang out and wait for eternal life, you know, for, for life in heaven, eternal life starts now, knowing the Father is eternal life and living that abundant life, loving as if we live an abundant life, is part of what we are called to on, on this earth, here and now. And do we love in a sacrificial way because he loved us sacrificially? Well, if the answer to any of those questions is no or not altogether, the good news is that our response is not to try harder. I am so glad. Aren't you? That, that, that is not... That's not the answer. I'm going to try harder. I'll do better. Uh, just head for the door of the sheep. 
Right? That, that's the answer. Just, just go to the door of the sheep, head for the good shepherd. He'll lead you to the pasture. He'll lead you back to the pen. He knows your needs better than you do. And he'll provide it more fully than you or I ever could. And he will provide for it. He'll supply the peace and the provision, the security, the abundant life and the love to a fullness that'll overflow into the lives of others. And now is as good a time in history for us to be living that sort of life as his sheep in his pasture. Let's pray. Lord, we, we do praise you as a great God and a good, good father. It, it is so much of what we read here today and reflect on today is so familiar to us. But Lord, we don't want it to lose its power to the profound truth that you love the world so much that you gave your only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you turned the world upside down. which is really right side up. That while the whole world lives as if, we ought to look out for our own interests because nobody else is going to. We ought to do unto others before they do unto us. That we ought to secure what it is that we desire or want to pursue even by climbing on top of others, cheating and manipulating and taking from others. Lord, that is, that is the way the world operates and we thank you for the revelation that the kingdom operates totally the opposite way. And that the way that Jesus lived and modeled for us a life and the, way, and the way he commanded us to live is the way of truth, the way of blessing, the way of abundance and freedom. So Lord, I pray you would renew our appreciation of that, Lord. Would you, would you fill us deeply and to overflowing with the sense of that, that we might live in joy and in peace and all the fullness you intend for us, even in spite of circumstances around us, that more and more a light may shine in your church into a world of darkness and that people looking in might marvel 
because of our love for one another and because of our love even for those who don't love us. Lord, would you work that in us afresh? In Jesus' name, amen.